0: Good morning. It is a delight to have an opportunity to speak God's Word to you this morning. I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 86. Psalm 86. It's exciting to me to see that slideshow uh, that was going between the services to direct your prayers. Two of the pastors of uh, our church in, in Kenya, Emmanuel Baptist Church, we're, we're pictured there. Uh, Pastor Ken Bugwa who uh, spoke here recently, as well as John Musimi. Uh, both of them would be glad to hear. I actually snapped a little photo of the, the slide and sent it along to them. So much affection and definitely greetings come from our church in uh, in Nairobi. We're very grateful for your partnership in the gospel. The pastor who was pictured in that photo, other than Pastor Ken, probably an example of the suffering that our church has encountered over the last 18 months. It's not been uh, an easy road for any of us. I think globally, it's been a very uh, difficult 18 months. Uh, so much uh, sickness. Uh, political division so much stress tension fear anxiety that pastor friend uh, actually at the very beginning of the year uh, he's 34 years old i think his wife was uh, younger than him and she passed away at the beginning of the year not related to uh, COVID, as far as as far as we can can tell In addition to that, our church uh, lost a pastor. A pastor was uh, working with us there. He's bivocational. He was from the United States, and his job uh, called him back, uh, kind of an obligatory evacuation, a very rapid one. Uh, So over the course of the weekend, as COVID uh, lockdown was beginning, one of our pastors, uh, maybe even in the course of 72 hours, he was evacuated and so we we lost a pastor um, that previous month even before the coronavirus hit uh, we had three active uh, church members uh, lose, lose loved ones including uh, pastor musimi it was difficult difficult start for the year uh, the pitsleys in particular uh, we uh, said goodbye to a missionary family who went over with us on the plane uh, went over to uh, Nairobi, Kenya. They had we had been serving uh, shoulder to shoulder from literally day one of our time in Kenya, and on uh, the twenty first of January uh, last year, uh, we said goodbye to them. They had looked at the the missionary task and decided that the timing was right for them to transition to from being sent ones to being sending ones. Uh, so they're active in their. Uh, local church he 's a deacon uh, there in their church in Michigan and uh, it was just time and and we understood their reasoning, but it was hard for us to say goodbye and that was only the beginning of a very difficult uh, year during the course of that year, uh, there were many places in the scriptures where we sought comfort and instruction uh, from the Lord, light in our Dark place. Uh, we looked at the sufferings of Naomi and Job, and drew comfort from uh, their examples and the Lord's work in their life. We uh, spent some significant time in First Peter. Some of you are studying First uh, Peter right now in uh, in a class. I, I was hearing some some notes about that class uh, in the in the previous hour. Precepts class, right? That's what it was called. And so you know that that's a letter that's written to suffering Christians, and we derived uh, much instruction from that. We spent some significant time in the book of Habakkuk, and the book goes from bewilderment to praise, and we identified with Habakkuk as he's crying out to the Lord, how long, O Lord? But there's no book of the scriptures where we drew more comfort than from uh, the book of the Psalms. And so this morning, my mission is twofold. I'd like to point you to the broad and deep, the global and individual purposes and aims of God. And I'd also like to share with you the encouragement that we have drawn as a church from allowing the Psalms to teach us to pray, allowing the Psalms to shape our petitions before our God. So let me read this psalm, this prayer, and then I will pray before uh, we start the rest of our time together. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me, for you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me a band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when you were upon the earth and your disciples were walking with you face to face, they asked you to teach them to pray, and we ask you, uh, Lord Jesus, the same, that as we look at this psalm, your spirit would be among us shaping our hearts, uniting our hearts. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would be teaching us how to speak before you, teaching us not to waste our words in useless repetition, but to pour out our longings and our praise and our yieldedness before you. Lord, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, shape our hearts in glad submission to your purposes in the midst of our difficulties. Lord Jesus, we ask you to teach us to pray, and we ask it in your name. Amen. The psalm is uh, set before us, I think it's difficult for us sometimes to catch the structure or the the outline of of a psalm, uh, often because the Hebrew mindset is different from our own mindset. The way that we are taught usually to speak in public uh, is to build to a crescendo. Even if you're writing a persuasive paper, your uh, English professor will teach you to put your, last and most, uh, to put your most persuasive point last uh, so that you kind of end with a bang. And that's how we typically will think in terms of logic. When we're reading a text, we, we often will anticipate that the uh, biggest point will be the last, but that's not the Hebrew way of thinking. Uh, The Hebrew way of thinking often will set up the most important point as the apex, the center in the middle of the text. And on either side, you put reflecting points so that you build to a crescendo and close with resolution. And we find the same mirroring happening in this text. I was talking to my Hebrew professor recently about about this psalm, and he said, oh, right, it's an inclusio. So that's the technical term for, uh, for the structure of this psalm. It's an inclusio. All that means is bookends. That means the most important thing is included in the middle, inclusio. And the two sides reflect one another, and you can see that. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me Verse 1, verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. David, the psalmist here, puts on either side of of the text his request, his petition. Uh, So, to give you a little bit of a roadmap for the way ahead, uh, we're going to start by taking a look at our anguish. David setting his poverty and need before the Lord. But interwoven with David's poverty and need, right in the midst of his petition, he looks to the name of to the name of God. He rests his requests on God's attributes. Look at the reflection of verse 5 and 15. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So David teaches us as he's teaching us to pray here and recording his own prayers before the Lord. He goes from his anguish to God's attributes, and he relies on God's covenant-keeping character. And that's the beginning and the end of the psalm. In the middle, we find the apex. We find the summit of his thought. And what we find there is not only does God, does God teach us to rely on his covenant-keeping character, our cry to our creator submits to God's purposes. God, the psalmist here goes from God's attributes to God's aims. And that'll be our plan for this morning. We'll take a look at our anguish than God's attributes, then God's aims. Let's dive in. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. There's hardly anybody in the Bible, any character in the Bible who could be better characterized as a man's man than David. He's a, he's a warrior. He's, he's a man, in fact, who was uh, under God's disapproval for the blood that was that was on on his hands uh, he's the hero of the classic David and Goliath story he is he is a man who attracted the 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 buccaneers of his day when he was when he was fleeing from Saul even though he was a, a fugitive even though all of society you would expect to, to look down on him and, and, to, and to curry favor with the king by, by disowning David. He attracted a band of men around him, uh, a, a mighty host. He's, uh, he's the, the one who, as a mere youth, grabbed the beard of, of a lion to uh, defend his sheep. And yet before our God, David recognizes his poverty and his need. It's no compromise of his masculinity to come before God in a position of dependence or even desperation. And this teaches us as we are learning to pray to cast aside all pretense of self-sufficiency and self-confidence. What a freeing instruction for us. That as we, become, as we come before our God, he's not looking for our worth. He's not looking for our effort. He's not looking for God helps those who help themselves. God helps the helpless, the poor, and needy. David is pouring out before his God, his anguish. In fact, if you read straight through the Psalms, that's one of the things that can be difficult about, about the Psalms. If you have a Bible reading plan that takes three or four Psalms a day, you find like, wow, this is, this is a little bit depressing. And if you're not in the middle of a struggle, you can say like, this, this almost feels like whining. But that's, that's, not, that's not it at all. The psalmist is pouring his heart out before his God and showing us to do the same. There's no pretense, there's no pride when he says, for I am poor and needy. In fact, this entire psalm could be summarized with a proverb. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Look at verse 14, the mirror, a mirror verse. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. They do not set you before them. I think often in in ancient cultures, it was a little bit easier uh, to uh, teach humility uh, before the supernatural. Uh, During this Era uh, after the Enlightenment, we have lots of confidence in human advancement, a lot of confidence in technology and science to answer our questions and provide for our needs. But in ancient times, there was a name for those who rose up against God or the gods. Even pagans had a sense of the the despicableness of arrogance before the supernatural. The word that the Greeks used is a word that came right into English. It's the word hubris. Uh, f- one example of, of hubris is the original story of The Little Mermaid. This little, in the story of The Little Mermaid, the original, uh, the mermaid leaves her station in life to go uh, to the surface and, and to pursue life with regular human beings. And because she does so in nefarious ways, she brings about a string of events that brings collapse both to her and to those around her. So if you take the Disney movie and cut it off at the point where, uh, where it looks like Ursula is going to win, and you just say, okay, that's the end of the story. That was was actually the way the original fairy tale went. It was a a tale to, to tell people not to rise up above your station, to honor your parents. And hubris is that which rises up before the gods, or in this case, the true and living God. They do not set you before them, they're arrogant. They live as though they can confidently go through this life without need or reference to the true and living God. They're insolent and arrogant. And David realizes in his prayer before God that hubris leads to humiliation. But humility leads to help. He is poor and needy. We won't have time to go through every single verse uh, in this psalm, but I do want to point out uh, something from verse 2 that, that augments and adds to our picture of this poverty and need. Preserve my life, David says, for I am godly. Elsewhere, that, that word godly is, uh, is rendered holy or faithful. It's actually a very flexible word, and it's a word that's hard to, it's hard to translate, but I think that this psalm actually gives us an idea of exactly what it means in this context, if we just read the entirety of the verse. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Sometimes we get a little bit nervous in reading the psalms, uh, because the psalmist will claim his righteousness before God his innocence before God. And so he will say, my enemies are against me, but I am innocent. And it makes us a little bit nervous because we know no one seeks after God, right? The book of Romans, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It makes us a little nervous because it seems like he's, he's claiming absolute righteousness, but that's not the case. Uh, both David and Solomon and all of the psalmists are very well aware of their sinfulness before god and that's why uh, so many of the psalms have notes of confession as well yet when he says he's godly here he's holy or he's faithful what he's not doing is claiming that he has merit before god like he has uh, some sort of spiritual currency with which he can pay god so that god will answer his prayer rather what he's saying is what this verse continues to say I am, save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. In other words, when David is saying that he is holy, he's saying, I'm not looking to Baal. I'm not looking to Molech. I'm not looking to silver. I'm not looking to horses. You are my God. I trust in you. You're the only hope I have. You're the only light at the end of this tunnel. You see the neediness, the poverty of David's spirit. As he cries out, God, you are all I've got. If we were to stop here with David's anguish, with his crying out in need and poverty, uh, we might be tempted to despair. But our, I believe that this, uh, this psalm, our psalm here this morning, takes us both from self-confidence and from despair. And teaches us to cast our confidence on our creator. Who is this God that we are called to cast our confidence on? Look at, verses, look at verses 5 and 15. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Verse 15. You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When David's anguish takes him to the end of his rope, God's strength comes to the rescue. Our cry to our creator arises from our weakness, but it relies on God's covenant-keeping character. This text, I I actually studied through this this passage, tried to study in depth, verse by verse, got all the way through, and had a little you know study written out, and I realized, as I was reading my 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 study that I had never uh, come across a very critical cross reference and it 's actually exodus thirty four what we what we read, verses one through nine uh, earlier in this service. so this text exodus thirty four uh, David draws on it here as fundamental to his request before God, just as Jesus taught us. To call upon our heavenly Father. So David looks back to Exodus 34 and draws upon what God has revealed about himself there. And David's not the only one who does this. Exodus uh, 34 came up in, in many texts throughout the scriptures, it's already present in Numbers and Deuteronomy comes up in 2 Samuel and 2 Kings and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah and Micah, Nahum, other Psalms, Lamentations, Daniel, Nehemiah, Second Chronicles, all draw on this Exodus 34 text. It was foundational. It was like a statement of faith for the people of Israel. God had condescended to give his people his name. And then explained what that name means. Let's take just a quick look at that text one more time. Exodus 34. We'll see what David is, is drawing on. I'll just read verses 6 and 7 so that you can see the parallels. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34:7 keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So at the very beginning of Israel's history as a nation, after they had been delivered from Egypt and then totally blown it with the golden calf, God condescends to give him to give them his name the lord the lord a god merciful and gracious and yet for us who have sinned and for the israelites who are just coming out of this golden calf debacle they must have sensed attention for themselves because god is keeping steadfast love for thousands On one side, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And on the other side, he will by no means clear the guilty. Now imagine yourself as an Israelite just coming from the golden calf incident. Where do I stand, Lord? Am I on the forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin side? Or am I on the he will be by no means clear the guilty? How in the world can you be both? How can the Lord be a consistent God and yet forgive and clear the guilty? That was a a mystery that each Israelite would have had as fundamental to his theology for 1,500 years. They quoted this passage over and over and over again and never saw a full resolution of that mystery Until the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God did not only condescend to give us his name. He condescended and became one of us. To reveal himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came as a human being. Lived the perfect life that we were called to live. That we never could. And died To suffer the punishment of the guilty, you and me, so that God could be, as Romans 3 says, both the justifier, or both just and the justifier of the one who trusts in Jesus. He's both the one who does not clear the guilty and the one who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. This is our God, and that is our gospel. That is good news that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will find forgiveness of sins in him, will find a just and righteous God satisfied and welcoming, that he would adopt us into his family by his spirit so that we can cry, Father, who art in heaven, so that we can claim, like David claims in Psalm 86, verse 5, You are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. If you've never submitted yourself to this God, if you are still holding on to arrogance and self-confidence, turn, call upon the name of the Lord, he will forgive You stand under his condemnation, and he will by no means clear the guilty. But there is good news. There is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus. He is a God who is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. Cry out to our creator. So this is David's prayer. He cries out to God in the midst of his anguish and he rests and relies upon God's covenant-keeping character as his as the anchor of his confidence. We could go away from that thinking, like, we have a solid theology of prayer that is so rich and, and deep. And yet the apex and the summit of David's thought in this psalm is yet to come. Because David takes his eyes off his anguish, and in verses 8 through two through 13, looks to the horizon and sees God's broad and deep purposes for the world and for himself and finds great comfort just as we can in God's aims. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great And do wondrous things. You alone are God. Our God has set his omnipotent, omniscient eye upon the purpose of bringing before his son, the Lord Jesus, people from every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. His purpose will not falter. His omnipotent power will not fade. Revelation 4 will come to pass and we will bow before the throne from every kindred and tongue and people and nation and worship the the Lamb who has redeemed us into a kingdom of priests. Jesus, when he was on the earth, taught us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see how Jesus also taught us not only to rely on our relationship with our God by calling him Father, but also to submit our requests, our need, our difficulty, to submit it to his global purposes. Our God will one day have uncontested, gracious authority over all the earth. Every competitor is going to lose. Whether that competitor is Molech or Baal or silver or horses or Allah or the almighty dollar or Krishna or Capitol Hill. Whatever competitor will lose and our God will win. And because our God will win, David is confident that his purposes will be accomplished. David here drawing upon the promises uh, that the Lord made to Abraham. In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we have so much, a full Bible full of these promises that direct us to God's worldwide aims. In the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our difficulty, Christian, in the darkness, look to the horizon. God wins. His purposes shall not fail. And thus your labor is not in vain in the Lord. God will create this outcome. From however difficult it seems right now, however chaotic your neighborhood or your world feels, God wins. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. Now, of course, that does not mean that every single individual will come and worship. And that's a thought that should spur us on to share this God, to make him known. Nevertheless, all the nations will one day come before him. And our God's purposes are not merely global. They are neither narrow nor shallow. Look at what he says in verses 11 through 13. Teach me your way, O Lord. That I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Just as David is confident that all the nations that, he, that God has made shall worship before him, so he is also confident that he himself will glorify God's name forever. In other words, God, is not only given, God has not only given himself to see that all over the world he reigns in uncontested and gracious authority, he has also given himself to create in our hearts undistracted and grateful worship. He's given himself to that task within us. And and David pleads that the Lord would complete that task in him. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Christian, in the midst of your struggle and difficulty, you may feel your heart tugged in all sorts of different directions. There may be so many little things that need to change about your situation, and an overwhelming number of agenda items that need to be different. And David takes all of that, all of that chaos, and submits to God's purposes for himself and asks God, unite my heart to fear your name. Take all of these desires, everything that I want to change about my situation, take all of those things, And unite them into a single passion. To know you, to make you known. Teach me your way. I will glorify your name forever. Make my passion single. Unite my heart to fear your name. Lord, what I want most is that everything about my circumstances, the persecution and Uh, the persecution and ill repute that I face at work, the difficulties that I face with my family at home, take all of these and use them to unite my heart to one passion, to fear your name. That in all of the world, there would be nothing more important to us than the reputation of God. Unite my heart. To fear your name, that in all the world there would be no greater delight than knowing this God. In the midst of David's anguish, he refuses to yield to despair, not out of personal grit, not out of self confidence, but out of confidence in God's character and confidence in God's purposes, both for this world and for him. This psalm teaches us to yield in glad submission to what God is doing. This is not a trite use, for instance, of Romans eight twenty eight. God is going to work everything out for good, but rather a tearful, tear-jerking response in the midst of pain, in the midst of anguish to say, Lord, do what you're going to do. Make me like Jesus. My uh, pastor, the pastor of the church that uh, sent us uh, to Kenya, uh, instructs people in discipling to use an, an acronym for prayer, uh, just so that people know um, some basic guidelines for pouring out their heart before God. Sometimes you're just stumped, you don't know what to say because you don't have any, any ideas. And so he has given us some items that we can always pray for. And the first is, it's, it's an acronym for PRAY. Praise, start with praising the Lord, like these attributes here. Uh, Repent, that is confessing any sin that the Lord has brought to light. Ask, bringing our requests before the Lord, and the final is yield. That's what this psalmist is exemplifying for us here. The Lord Jesus did not merely teach us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He also lived it, didn't he? to the very deepest and darkest hour of his life when he cried out, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And because Jesus faced that hour, because he knew that anguish and yielded to the Father's will, willingly giving up himself for us because he has done that, we can be confident that yielding to God's purposes for us will be good. He loves us. He will take care of us. His ways are good. We should seek his ways no matter what the cost. Jesus gave himself. Our Father gave his one and only Son. We can yield to his good purposes. Let us use this psalm to shape our petitions before our God and submit our hearts and our yearnings to his grand designs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a delight to see your word, to know your instruction. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark, even in how to approach you in prayer. Lord, there's so often when our grief and our struggles push us to a point of wordless despair, and yet you have revealed to us words that we can speak in confidence in your character and purposes. I pray that you would teach us to pray.